almost a third of all charitable giving in the U.S. is congregations giving to their local churches. A new study reveals insights you won't want to miss. Informing, encouraging, and supporting your church. You're listening to the Excellence in Church Administration podcast from ECFA. Hi, this is Michael Martin, and thank you for joining the Excellence in Church Administration podcast. Well, hey, if you're like most churches, I am sure that you're always looking for insights on what other churches are doing when it comes to giving, how well are congregations doing as a whole, and what changes are happening. Well, that's why we are excited to share a conversation that ECFA's own Vice President of Research, Dr. Warren Bird, had with our friend, Dr. David King, Director of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving, about the Institute's just published report on congregations' economic practices. Well, let's go to Warren and David as they dive into some of the surprising results that the report reveals. Today we're going to talk about something with very practical uh, fingers to it. Everything from bivocational pastors to do leaders know how much people give and does that impact giving in a church to endowments and several other topics as we look at the just released National Study of Congregations Economic Practices. And if that sounds like a mouthful, they use an acronym, INSEP. And that's how you can find it online, the letter NSCEP.org. And it explores how congregations receive money, like who gives, how much, and so forth, when. How congregations manage money, as in what do they teach about finances and stewardship, and how do they manage the resources they do receive, and how congregations spend money on their members, their community, and beyond. This is the first major nationally representative cross-denominational study of congregational finances in like 30 years, and they got like 1,233 usable responses, and this is wonderful, and I'm not going to talk about it because I have an expert here, Dr. David P. King, who serves as the Karen Lake Buttry Director of the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving. He's an assistant professor also at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. He's the author of a new book, God's Internationalist World Vision and the Age of Evangelical Humanitarianism. And I started reading that. I'm in about chapter four, and I've learned all kinds of things about world vision. And even more, he's recently the author and study co-director of the National Study of Congregations Economic Practices with the executive report just released. So, David, welcome. And maybe you need to unpack a few of these uh, lily uh, uh, and other words that I've been using just to put context. And then we'll jump into very practical topics. Oh, sure. Thanks, Warren. It's, it's, a great, it's a great delight to be a part of the ECFA podcast. And, and Lake Institute really is a, is a, is a great friend of ECFA. And, and our work is, is interesting in the sense that we're housed within the, the, the School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. We say we're the best school of philanthropy in the world because we're the only school of philanthropy in the world where you could get an undergraduate master's or PhD in philanthropic studies. Many of our students will be fundraisers or directors of nonprofits. But Lake Institute within the school is really a unique institution. We've been there for 15 to 16 years, but our express mission is to 
to understand the dynamic relationship um, between faith and giving. And we do that through a variety of ways. Uh, research is one of those, and that's where, that's where this report comes from, from a, uh, from a grant from the Lilly Endowment to look into these questions. And if you think it's hard to talk to pastors about money, try to get them to fill out an hour-long survey uh, about all these deep questions that, that we're working with. But that, that was our task. Before we get into the study, let me just, let's, let's do a big frame thing about charitable giving in general and the religion piece of it, because uh, 29% of all charitable giving goes to America's congregation, and that's $125 billion. And, and yet, the share of Americans who are giving by household and by other measures is declining. And uh, David, uh, let's have you comment on that, and then we'll get into some of the particulars of your report. Yeah, and this is something we've been tracking for a long time. So uh, Giving USA, which is really more the, the most comprehensive picture of charitable giving that we, that we have each year, sort of what are the trends in charitable giving by individuals to nonprofit organizations, we've seen that religious giving has declined fairly steadily over the last uh, 30 plus years from even as high as 50, 50% or more of all giving going to religious organizations to right now, as you said, 29%, just under a third. Now, it's important to think about how we define religious giving. So for the sake of um, all of these studies, it really is basically congregational giving and also includes denominations and religious media. Uh, what it doesn't include are many of the, uh, the organizations that are uh, aligned with uh, ECFA, membership organizations like um, uh, social service agencies, international affair agencies, higher education, Christian colleges, for instance. So one thing we might be seeing with the decline in that religious giving number is that finances are moving from, or giving is moving from the local congregation to maybe a, a wider variety of faith-based or secular nonprofits. And David, just to clarify, when you mention those examples from ECFA, they are part of the whole charitable giving pie. They're just classified by Giving USA in different categories. Exactly. So there are different, sec the religious giving segment is by far the largest. So even though it's been declining, it really is um, up just under a third today, well over a half in the 1980s and early 1990s. But there are a variety of other sectors that include a huge percentage of faith-based organizations like higher education, like social services, international affairs. You can think of, of uh, some of the biggest nonprofits in the country and many member ECFA organizations that would fit uh, in other sectors as defined by um, Giving USA. But when we think of religious giving as that small that sector that you've defined at that 29%, that's mostly congregations. Um, but the fact that that's still 125 billion with a B, uh, that's by far the, the biggest sector within the larger charitable giving landscape, 350,000 plus. But the problem is, as you noted, we don't know that much about them because like most other nonprofits that are filing their tax returns or their 990s each year, Congregations are exempt for, um, for the most part in doing that. So what do we know? We know a lot of money comes in and out and a lot of great uh, work is being done, but what's happening uh, there is what we wanted to look at. Um, the trend with households, sort of declining numbers of households giving has been going down for a, for a number of years since we've been tracking. So a lot of the big questions that I know that you at ECFA and, and, and us at Lake Institute 
have been tracking how uh, reform, tax reform, or different policies around uh, tax reform for um, standard deductions going up, how some of these um, uh, financial questions are changing, how nonprofits are receiving um, giving. Uh, the larger picture is giving has been, as far as a share of households, has been declining uh, even before some of these more recent headline questions. Uh, so for, particularly for Christian organizations, I think it's important, and, and I know the ECFA works on this too, to think about how we steward uh, givers how in our fundraising, in our recruiting towards uh, the missions that we're about. It's actually not simply trying to raise the money we need for the work that we're called to do, but also as a part of that, I think we have the best opportunity to help shape givers, which again, is gonna shape and uh, I'd say transform all of our organizations over time. Okay, shall we dig into some of the particulars that you discovered in your great report? That'd be great. Which again, people can download by going to nscep.org and get the executive summary. Uh, but let me start with one section of your survey dealt with training about finances. And in one question, you ask about whether congregations encourage participants to give a tithe or percentage of income to charity. And only 54% of congregations said yes. And, and then you ask, well, if you do give, you know, to your do you view your congregation as the primary place to give financially? And only 41% said yes. So can you kind of unpack what does that mean and, and do we have any sense of how that influences uh, the giving and the growth and kind of what's the story that's, that's being pointed at here? Well, I think there's, there's several things. And let me just maybe hit on two. I think one that we've seen in our work at Lake Institute for quite a while is that that money talk is a taboo topic. And so uh, oftentimes we know that, that teachings on giving, talking about finances within the congregation is something that oftentimes is not, um, it's not of central focus. And so oftentimes we uh, put that to the side and we don't, we don't want to mix the material and the spiritual. So it finds its way to, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the edge of our worship services or it finds its way to the edge of our, our Christian education. And so first, I think it's just um, uh, an uneasiness of many religious leaders, clergy and pastors to begin to bring these topics up. Um, but we also think about there's a number of different types of giving cultures and, and languages within our different types of congregations. And so some are more tied to language around tithing, sort of a first fruits model, bringing uh, those tithes and those gifts and offerings to the congregation first. Um, but what we learned, and, and surprisingly so, was that uh, that language is maybe not as prevalent in, in, in all congregations. Uh, maybe it's not wanting to talk about it, but also I think it, you know, when we explicitly ask about teaching around a tithe or teaching around where to give, we saw those smaller percentages, like you say. I think different types of congregations um, use different language around there. There's a culture built in about how we talk about giving. Um, the other thing maybe to remember is that there's a, de a decline in religious literacy across the board in many of our congregations. So I'm, I'm oftentimes, I used to be more and more surprised, I'm less surprised today, uh, that when I'll talk to, you know, um, 
numbers of individuals in a congregation that might think a tithe is any, any giving they give to, a, to their church. So it's not tied to that root of a tenth. Uh, we're not fighting about a um, net or gross question. We're just thinking about sort of that, that built-in formation. And so again, I think that language, whatever language that fits your context most uh, particularly, is something that we have to bring up because we can't assume, which congregations have often done, that the people in our pews know what, what we expect of them to participate within the church. Excellent points. Let me go to another section of the survey that asks how often the congregation acknowledges people for their gifts, so the, the thank you note, the acknowledgement. Only 33% do so quarterly or more often, and the lion's share, according to your report, 63% do so only annually. Wow. Can, can you unpack what's the story behind that? Well, I think that this is a, another point where congregations really lag most other nonprofits. And there's, a, there's an assumption, an expectation that those who are belonging to our congregations just give. And that's what they do. That's what we expect. Uh, and so we don't thank them uh, for their gift the way that most other nonprofits would. I guarantee you, um, if, if we made a gift to a large or even small uh, faith-based nonprofit, I'd have a thank you email or a personal note, uh, maybe with instantaneously, instantaneously or within the next week. Um, what we found out is most often congregations do that annually. And when they give that, that note, looks much more like an acknowledgement letter for a tax return than it does a thank you. Um, and so the expectations, those assumptions that we, that we, that are there and how we talk about congregational giving and finances are, are lacking far behind what other nonprofits are doing. Sort of the, and what I think is happening is that many givers and donors, even in the faith-based world, will, will make that connection to other organizations that, that have worked to build a relationship with them, to thank them for their gift, to acknowledge their gift, to, to find ways to bring them alongside them in the mission of that organization. Um, congregations lag behind industry standards, you know, in the nonprofit space there. And I think we would do well to find some time any given week. I think a pastor needs to set aside an hour to, uh, to, write, to write those notes, to make a few calls, to schedule a few coffee conversations, to build relationships, not with any, even maybe a particular ask or expectation in mind, but to thank people for, for who they are how they give and how they participate in the life of congregation. So digging a little deeper, your report says that 56% of congregations who acknowledged quarterly reported revenue increases uh, versus those who never acknowledge. So I guess it's kind of like uh, the story I heard from a pastor who said, well, why did you give to someone else? Why did you give that money to the nearby uh, Christian college and the person said because they asked and every time I give to them they quickly gush with a thank you and uh, and the church as you say the culture has passed uh, many churches but the acknowledgements do seem to have an impact on uh, increased giving yeah, we found that the those that that thank more thank and acknowledge more often see. Um, on average, higher percentages of revenue growth uh, over the over the past three years than those who who don't or do um, do uh, rarely or never. 
people want to be thanked. Who Name one person who doesn't want to be thanked or acknowledged for, for how they participate. Uh, you can do this in a variety of ways, too. So it doesn't mean you have to make a personal card every time someone makes a gift. Um, but think particularly what we found that oftentimes happens, particularly for electronic or digital giving, is that it's, it's much easier to make that immediate uh, acknowledgement, and you can tailor oftentimes those acknowledgements um, with a specific message from your congregation. So I think it's something to, to be intentional about because we've learned that it also it makes a huge difference. People want to build that relationship. We know that people are more likely to engage in one, one's congregation if they feel like they have that personal connection, that relational place to, to be known. Um, and uh, this is one way, particularly in giving, that we can build that relationship and, and make people be, feel seen, known, and engaged in the mission. Another finding from your report, I was surprised that the, the pledge, for lack of a better word, is still very live, with 45% of congregations conducting an annual stewardship campaign. And of those, 64% of congregations asked individuals to pledge. Again, did you find any relationship between those who did and any story that comes out of it? Yeah, this was a surprising one for me. And I, and I would say that um, we ran those numbers and really it makes about, they're about the same. You know, congregations that, that focus on annual stewardship campaigns and, and the pledge uh, have about the same, num same percentage of giving as far as growth and revenue received than those who don't. Uh, the irony is, you know, when I presented these numbers at a different type of uh, congregational group, you know, let's think maybe, maybe more mainline Protestants, maybe some Catholics that have higher percentages of, um, of their congregations who fall into a pledging culture, um, they're shocked on the other side to see that the pledging numbers are so low. So I think what I've learned is that we have a lot of built-in giving cultures within our traditions. So our religious traditions may have distinct worship practices, theology, biblical interpretation, but at the same time, we have some of these cultures built into our traditions around how the expectations are around giving. If you have a pledging structure, I probably wouldn't pull it back too much. I do think that it's intentional, the intention, at least in annual time, uh, to intentionally talk to someone about their giving to have them have that consideration is important. How one does that, I think, can be done in a lot of different ways. Helpful. Let's go to my biggest surprise in the findings, that 55%, that's just over half, say clergy have access to participants giving records. And it gets even higher. 58% of those who have access actually look at the giving records. So, um, and, and of those who look, another 58% report budget growth. What do you make of that? Well, this is a, uh, this is a soapbox that at Lake Institute that we, that we uh, jump on quite a bit. Um, so what we're saying here, what we've been seeing with the way we've interact with religious leaders uh, for years, you know, several decades in teaching courses on um, fundraising and stewardship within congregations. And the biggest taboo topic is, does the pastor know who gives and how much? And so what we were able to test for the first time uh, through the study was the fact that about just a little over half of congregations say that their 
their head clergy person, their pastor has that access. And, a, and half of that group really look. Um, but of those who look, they're on average well over 10% um, are, are demonstrating revenue growth at about 10% higher clip than those who don't. And we ask questions to follow up and actually say, of those, you, of those who look, why do you look? Those who don't, why not? And you might imagine the, same, the answers are true, that, that those who don't want to look don't want that to um, skew the, the relationship they may have um, with uh, parishioners or those entrusted to their care. And, and the ones who do want to talk about, you know, it's important if they're going to um, bring someone into leadership, you know, as a deacon or as an elder or as a committee member, they want to know what that looks like. For us, we think that pastors, religious leaders are entrusted to so, uh, with so much deeper and more um, personal information than if someone gives and how much, whether it's about someone's marriage life, about their addictions, about their work and vocation. That if we as religious leaders, and I take myself into this, into this group too, can't be trusted uh, on topics of finances and, and not treat people differently based on who, how they give and how much, then we might be in the long, wrong line of work. And uh, I think it's, it, it's important for pastors to know uh, and to have that information is an important part of how they not only uh, manage their congregation, lead their team, but also to allow them to build uh, to build into the discipleship work that they do with individuals entrusted to their care. And one of the biggest topics that we don't want to discuss uh, are the topics that we have to discuss every day at Lake Institute. It's about money and religion. And we try to stay out of politics, but it's something we don't want to talk about. It's something the church, I think, should jump jump into the fray and help um, help people because they're starving for it. Uh, they may not want to hear us preach about uh, giving, but they do want the leadership and and care and how to manage their finances to know how much is enough. And uh, that's an important part of a, a pastor's role. And this is one particular way I think that pastors can can help shape that conversation. Well, that section of the report is going to lead to a lot of lively discussions. Let me change gears and talk about bivocational pastors. That was another uh, big discovery in the report. Your study involved congregations of all sizes, and it's a known fact that among Protestant churches, the typical church is actually quite small with median attendance of under 100 on a typical weekend. You found overall that 20% of U.S. congregations have bivocational leaders. And uh, do you know about that for different sectors like uh, Protestant churches? Uh, and do you know what the dynamics are if the person is bivocational versus not? Yeah, it seems like, and this is something that, that we'll admit we have a lot more work to do. Um, there, there's so many different variables that, that play into these, the what you know, how to predict how congregation is doing. But we do know that uh, growing numbers of congregations are relying on bivocational pastors. Black Protestant congregations have the highest number of, of bivocational pastors uh, among the various religious traditions that we were able to study. Um, it seems like at present that those congregations with bivocational pastors did did uh, report uh, higher percentages of uh, uh, higher percentages of those congregations reported that they did grow in revenue compared to congregations overall. What we don't know uh, for a fact is that you know did 
sort of bringing down that um, that pastor from full time to part time was the savings that allowed them to grow. Whether they were just always um, more cognizant of, of of living within maybe within their means of the congregation's budget. Um, so we have seen a wide variety of bivocational um, frameworks. You know, whether it be serving multiple congregations or having serving a congregation on top of another uh, another vocational job. So there's a lot more we can work on there. What we want to sort of start to see is is what types of congregations are succeeding with bivocational pastors, and what that what that might look like. Uh, we saw you know. We're in the middle of interviews right now with over around 100 different congregations that took part in the survey. And these are the kind of questions that we'll want to dig into more. So over the next year, we'll be releasing a number of other reports that kind of dig into some of these questions that we couldn't quite get at with a survey, um, but in many ways may be a growing trend that we'll see, particularly for smaller congregations on our American landscape for the next 10, 15 years. Let's talk about endowments. You uncovered that 34% of congregations have endowments from 59% among mainline Protestant congregations to 5% among black Protestant congregations. That's got huge implications. What do you know of the story so far of what endowments, their impact on a congregation? Yeah, that's a great question and one that we're continuing to dig into because it's one of the questions that we that we that we've gotten a lot from the report is is what's happening there and, and what kind of impact that has on a congregation's budget and how they think about their work. Um, some of these these endowments could be anything from a few a uh, few thousand dollars to obviously millions. Um, one thing that we were struck by is is who has endowments and who doesn't. So it's quite clear that you know over half you know half of Catholics. Well over half of mainline Protestants have endowments, and that number is, is quite small. You mentioned it, 5% for black Protestants and, and quite low for, for, for evangelical Protestants overall. So there's a, there's a, there's a diversity. Um, uh, part of it is based on age of the congregation. The older congregations, obviously, you know, pre-1900, are going to have uh, endowments at much higher levels. So not only the, the religious tradition, but also the age of congregation matters. So what we're seeing is, is congregations on average um, receive about 4% of their sort of annual budget from endowments. That number is for some quite high, uh, much higher than that. And then for some, obviously, that have no endowment at all, it's quite low. Um, one thing that we're starting to look into is how endowments uh, play on individual contributions and in giving. Uh, so some, the question we get a lot of times is, if a congregation is quite dependent on his endowment, does that, does that hurt regular giving? Do they say, you know, others have already taken care of that sort of thing? Uh, we found out that, that only slightly does it really make a, a, a difference. But that's a, a point that I think that a lot of congregations are being, beginning to think through. So what should, we, what should we raise money for for an endowment? Is it maybe not for staff, maybe it's for building or particular mission programs? Um, but also how to frame that in ways that do not uh, cannibalize individual regular stewardship and giving. And that's a question I think most congregations need to, to work toward. The other thing we know, extended beyond endowments in particular, but also thinking about the, a wide variety of um, designated giving or, or um, whether it might be uh, larger gifts, whether it's capital campaigns or thinking about wills, bequests, donor advised funds, is thinking about that is a different stream of revenue that congregations should also begin to think about. 
circles. Many people can give on a regular weekly or monthly basis, but there are particular fundraising um, streams that congregations should consider about how to, to work with their members about including the congregation in its will or what happens when someone is ready to sell a business. These are the kinds of things that you need to be ready for for congregations, uh, in my opinion, in order to have a diversified revenue stream. Most of that money comes in from regular contributions, much higher than many other nonprofits. But the congregations that continue to grow have revenue coming from, uh, from a number of different streams, maybe endowment, maybe facilities, rent, services, um, but a number of different streams of revenue. There is a lot in this report. Uh, I've covered a bunch of topics. Let me throw the final one to you. What were you most excited about as you uh, unpacked the findings? And what is the discovery that you hope most people will notice as they're reading and will reflect on and act upon? Well, two things really jumped out at me. And one is where you started with the news that we get oftentimes is religious giving continues to decline. Um, you know, religious attendance and affiliation, these numbers that we often hear reported are on the, on, on the decline. What we found was um, that congregations are more, you know, congregations growing than declining. There are more congregations at even higher levels that are growing in revenue than are declining in revenue. And I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture because 42% of all congregations that we study were, were decreasing or remaining the same in both revenue and size. But the picture is varied. And so what I wanted, what I love to see was the diversity of congregations that we have in the United States. All sizes, shapes, religious traditions, and that there are ways to, to succeed and to even thrive and not in small, medium, large sizes and all shapes and sizes. Uh, the other thing I would say that really struck me was oftentimes, at least in our research, congregations are thought of as uh, spending most of our money on ourselves, uh, on staff and facilities, uh, and only you know a smaller percentage is going back into missions and programs. Um, while that's still true, that you know seventy plus percent of of congregations' uh, budgets are are tied to compensation and facilities on average. Um, that, and again, thinking about ways that we talk about how those staff and those buildings serve our communities. But the important point I think we saw was that 98% of congregations were partnering with another organization outside themselves to do missions or social service work in their communities. So congregations are not lone um, wolves, lone actors. They are engaging with their communities more locally than even nationally and internationally, but they're doing it with other organizations. So I'm thinking about ECFA, for example, that is a, a great mix of congregations and what we might think of as parachurch or other faith-based nonprofits, if the narrative sometimes can be that congregations are in competition with the parachurch organizations for funding and for mission, what we found oftentimes is congregations were as much in cooperation with these other organizations. And so congregations oftentimes became a venue for other congregations, other nonprofits to come in and, and partner, or they could point people in that direction. And so I was really struck by the way that congregations and other faith-based nonprofits could work together for a mission and change and not sort of be in competition for, for a shrinking number of donors. And that excites me about the future. 
Dr. David P. King, you have just given us so much in the report that uh, we can read and in today's commentary. Uh, thank you for being our guest, and we're going to look forward to learning a lot more from you and for from the institutes that you serve and get to do research through. Thanks, Warren. It's a pleasure to be here with you on the ECFA podcast, and we really would love to hear back from, from those who read the report. So, www ncep.org. That report is a, is a free download and we'd love to, with a full report, we could love to hear back from you. We'll continue to update that website with, uh, with, with new findings as, as they become available and, and please pass that out. It's something we want to get out into the hands of people interested in these topics because that's what we do at Lake Institute. Not only are we about research, we're really about the education and training, uh, most often of religious leaders, uh, particularly in, in faith-based nonprofits and congregations. So, You'll find there a number of the courses that we teach really engaging on stewardship and, and fundraising within congregations and faith-based nonprofits. And we uh, pride ourselves on research that's practically oriented to religious leaders, and, and we want to hear from you. So find me there and reach out uh, to, to me or our staff, and we'll look forward to continuing these conversations in the days ahead. Thank you so much. A joy to be with you. Thanks. Well, thanks again to Warren and to David and the entire team there that put together this great research. That really gives us so much to think about. And hey, to all of our listeners, this episode might be one that you need to reference again as you have the report in front of you. So go download the report today at ncep.org, and that is the letter N scep.org. There are so many things that we can learn about changing cultures and stewarding church resources. So I know you'll want to be sure to grab that. And hey, if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Well, thanks again for listening to another Excellence in Church Administration podcast.